When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Realwatersports.com is our retail partner today, and we often talk about their 1,500 board inventory. When I hear that number, uh, it makes me think, wow, they'll probably have what I want or something similar to what I want. But what else is great is if you don't know exactly what you want, they have surfboard review videos on their website. They've spent a bunch of time kind of building this out. This is one little angle where they've realized they can add value to the retail space. So they ride the surfboards, they then review them, they show footage of them riding the boards, explain some of the design concepts, the construction, the details. And the main purpose of that is to give you the information to make a decision, but their staff is very knowledgeable as well. And so they are there to help you get the right board for your needs and for your local waves. This is a classic old timey retail experience, customer service based, but with the benefit of the internet so they can do them in a video format and they're actually available by phone too. So just a fantastic partner. I'm thrilled with them, realwatersports.com. They're based in North Carolina, but they've really unlocked the code for shipping surfboards. So they do it for a flat fee and they guarantee the board to show up blemish free. So you can order it from anywhere in the world and based on their competitive pricing and their flat shipping fee, you can often get the board to you for cheaper than you can get it from your local retailer. So huge shout out, much love to realwatersports.com. Stephen Cooney was born into a very lucky place and time in history. It was Coleroy on the main drag running through the northern beaches of Sydney, New South Wales, Australia in the mid-50s. He was surfing before he hit double digits, and while the surf was uncrowded by today's standards, it was full of influential figures. Big Wave Wally Wallace, Bob Pike, Nat Young, Wayne Lynch, Ted Spencer, Bob McTavish, Simon Anderson, George Greeno. And by the ripe age of 16, Stephen was recruited by good friend Albie Falson to take a trip to Bali for a new film that he was shooting. Bali had been largely uncharted at that time, and Stephen had actually never even been on an airplane. The trip and the film would alter Stephen's life immeasurably and surf culture worldwide. That film, Morning of the Earth, just celebrated its 50th anniversary last month. It's been remastered and is currently touring Australia, so hopefully you can make it to a screening, but if not, you can grab a remastered copy of the film, a coffee table book, and a soundtrack on vinyl at morningoftheearth.com. Anyways, back to Stephen. In mid-2020, as COVID was just unfolding, he decided to use that downtime to organize an old closet at home. During that process, he unearthed a cache of old black and white negatives, prints, and proof sheets. 
They were from the first few decades of his life, his travels with Albie, those early years documenting his time surfing with the founders of the shortboard revolution. He eventually shared those photos with a publisher friend, John Ogden, who encouraged Stephen to write down some stories associated with the photos. And as Stephen laid out these stories chronologically, a narrative became apparent, his narrative, his early life story. He then tracked down some family members and historians to help verify facts and details, create a context. And now a short two years later, the project exists as an autobiography of Stephen Cooney, of course, but also of the shortboard revolution, of the film Morning of the Earth, and also of Trax Magazine. The book is called Unearthed, and it's published by Cyclops Press in Australia, and it's available in the US through Chatwin Books. I, of course, linked to all of those things, how to find that book on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Anyways, Stevens, an unassuming figure, someone who I knew very little about prior to reading his book, which is excellent, by the way. So I was really eager to hear more about this fascinating time in surfing, about the process of writing an autobiography, and also of revisiting all of this stuff at the 50-year marker. So my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Stephen Cooney. start by just asking how the screening went last week or were there multiple screenings uh so far it's been the screening um in melbourne okay. which, which coincided with the actual anniversary of, of the, the first screening of morning of the earth um and it was it was it was jumping there was uh there was people lining up around the block an hour before the show started so um it was really exciting yeah it was great yeah and the uh the show went over really well Great uh, audience participation, and uh, Albie getting up to do uh, or getting on on video link to to do the um, to do the question and answers uh, created created some good buzz around the crowd as well. So that was great. Yeah. I know the film was released to uh, like it was popular from the moment it was released, but is it surprising that fifty years later it's still resonating and finding new audience? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a regularly asked question. I mean, I don't think anyone expected a surf movie to um, to last, to, to have that sort of longevity. Um, but when you look at it, it's when you now look at it fifty years later, it's 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 still it, it's its undertones are, are all still quite current and resonate with a lot of the population now, whether they're surfers or whether they're not. Yeah. Yeah, and the surfing is still relevant too. You know. Yeah, yeah, no, it still has, you know, the, the again, I can only gauge on on the audience participation down in Melbourne. It was, and, and like, there was oohs and ahs and at certain points in the surfing and, you know, um, it, 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 yeah, it absolutely does. The surfing's relevant because I think there's people who who now wish they were in that, in that era and mm. they basically live their lives similar to that era and surf equipment that is based on that equipment. 
I know had had the 50th anniversary been in the 2000s, early 2000s, I don't know that it would be as relatable because I feel uh, everybody was still riding, you know, super thin rocker shortboards. But now you're right. People are, if they're not riding equipment that's similar to that, they're riding equipment, like you said, that's based on that, has modern modifications. But I'm still just trying to go as fast as I can down the line, find trim and do a good bottom turn, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, to be happy with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's um, what you guys were doing. Yeah, yeah, and and trying to find a barrel when we could, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I agree, I agree totally. Uh, but the the ethos of the movie is is really timely. The the whole ethos of the planet and the and the nature of surfing as it as it was in a fairly pure form, I think is still really relevant. More relevant now than ever, you could argue. I agree. Um, how long had it been since seeing the film? Oh, it had been a while. I, I saw it quite a bit. <laughs> I yeah. was a little bit. I was a little bit sick of Stephen Cooney, so so I, I didn't sort of watch it on a daily basis. But I guess it's been. Oh, I think before I sat down and watched the entire film, um, it's probably ten years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but but to see it to see it uh, redigitized that that was that was exciting, and it was yeah. up big like it was up bigger on screen than, than I remember it being when I first saw it. Um, but it's um, and and the colours are jumping. I mean, it's it's obviously made a big difference to the overall quality of the film, and and you know that's really exciting. Uh, do you remember the first time that you saw the film? Yeah, I do very well. <laughs> and you've read my book, haven't you? I have. I would love <laughs> to hear. You, I'd love to hear you tell that story. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, it was sort of like. Um, I was, of course, I was 15 years old, so I was getting a lift there. You know, I wasn't driving, you know, I didn't have a licence, so I was relying on my friends, my, you know, my people around me to, to get me there and, and for whatever reason we turned up a little bit late um, and by the time we got there, of course, the theatre was packed and the doors were closing and um, I had to convince them that I was actually in the movie and they didn't believe me at first and they decided they needed to go and get Albie or David, I can't remember who, but uh, decided they needed to go and get someone to, to clarify. And uh, when they did let us in, um, they let us sit on the stairs because there weren't any chairs, <laughs> there weren't any seats left. So we, we watched the theater, we watched it in the theater, sitting on the, sitting on the stairs, mm-hmm. which was a common practice in Australia in surf movies, I mean, yeah. You know, they'd overfill the, they overfill the theatre. They'd, they'd let people sit on the stairs. But, yeah, that was the first time. Mm. How did, uh, what did you think of the film? Then? Yeah, when you first saw it. Originally? I, I was, well, I was, it was just sort of a slow build. The, I was involved with Morning of the Earth before it was called Morning of the Earth, and I was seeing rushes and, um, material coming out of the product um, before it was actually released. So I was in, you know, I was hanging around the tracks office where, where at the same time they were doing Morning of the Earth. And so I was seeing the production happen and I was on the trips to places like Angari, the north coast of New South Wales and Lennox Head and um, places like that. And, and so 
I was seeing a bit of the material and I was seeing the direction it was going in and the type of footage it was. Um, and so Albie has a particular feel in his footage and in his, in his editing. Um, so when I saw it, it was not such a big surprise, but it was more a surprise to see, see and hear the reaction of the audience when I was sitting there. And, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were really excited. And, you know, after the movie, it was, a, it was quite a buzz going on. And obviously then it just um, exploded. <laughs> it got very can you, popular. <laughs> can you tell uh, the story of your interaction with Terry Fitzgerald leaving the theatre? Yeah, well, I think, I'd, I think I'd been in the water for too long that day and, um, and my eyes was, were pretty bloodshot and tired. Um, and uh, so this, watching the screen for that period of time, the, the time it was on, an hour and 90 or whatever what it is, um, my eyes became started to started to water, and um, so I uh, so when I was leaving the theatre, I, I was still a bit still a bit moist around the eyes, and Terry thought I was crying, and um, <laughs> came up to well, he didn't he didn't know he didn't think that until he walked up to me, and then when he walked up to me to sort of talk about the film, um, he um, he noticed that I was tearing up, what looked like tearing up, and. And uh, he just left me alone. He said, oh, mate, oh, I'll catch you another time, you know. <laughs> he thought I was, I was desperately emotional, and, but that wasn't really the case. I was just a bit tighter in the eyes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I could imagine when you're 15 years old, you'd be embarrassed by that. In, embarrassed that if you were crying, that you were crying, or that somebody would think that you were crying because you want to be macho when you're 15. But now that I'm older, I would think that would be so endearing to Terry, you know, to see that you're having this emotional response to this beautiful film. Yeah, well, it wasn't. Um, yeah. And in those days, it wasn't wasn't done thing. I mean, everyone was very manly. Yeah. And you yeah. just didn't, you didn't tear up, you know, that just, you know, you just didn't do that. And um, these days, much more acceptable. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Um, I want to talk about your origin story and how you discovered surfing and were positioned to be around all these icons. And we'll also kind of do it through the stories that you tell in the book. Um, there, explain kind of, if you will, how you found surfing and um, where your family was located and that sort of thing. Well, essentially we moved um, from uh, sort of the, the outer west of Sydney to which is nowhere near the coast and uh, moved to an area on the northern beaches of Sydney when I was uh, um, five months old and um, in a family of six kids I was the youngest and um, and so we moved to this coastal area in a lovely coastal area with plenty of surf around and um, my brother was four years older than I um, and he um, Basically, he was introduced to surfing by an uncle. Um, my father was then deceased. Um, he he was he was uh, he was participating in that area in in surf life saving. Um, uh, you know, which I've learned from only the only reason I know that is because of my, of my research uh, to to write the book. But um, there's an uncle who who used to come down and on the weekends from somewhere. And, um, and he used to take butch surfing originally. And, um, 
and then I just I just ended up at the, by the age of nine I had a I had an actual fiberglass surfboard. Prior to that, I was I was um, riding surf you know rubber mats, surf planes, things like that, you know. And um, and so yeah, it was really an evolutionary thing within the family. Uh, but as as my brother's you know Butcher's surfing ability and my surfing ability progressed, it became very much um, you know very much part of the local surf community, uh, both of us. And uh, with Butch uh, gravitating towards surfboard manufacturing, um, it, it put me really well position for a couple of free boards and and um and because we were fatherless um i was obviously uh obviously the the extra appendage i had to you know basically i was hanging around with my brother and uh he pretty much had to take me surfing because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to go surfing so so i was really just the grommet in the car or wherever or you're walking down the beach or whatever and so and that was that was pretty much how it all started um and we, uh, you know, spent, we spent, you know, I didn't leave the Northern Beaches for a while. Um, well, between nine and 15, <laughs> that was my first, that was my, uh, 15 was my first flight um, overseas. So pretty much between those years, we did a lot of surfing and um, with my brother and with people like Nat Young and Wayne Lynch, um, Ted Spencer, um, just people who are regular contest surfers of the era, which is probably a little bit different to the contests of today, simply because of the, the, the equipment and, and the purse. And it was mostly amateur competitions. But um, so, so I grew up around, I, I grew up around surfboard manufacturing, uh, living on the beach where there was plenty of options to surf in different conditions. And, and I was surrounded by mentors who were, just happened to be some of the best surfers in Australia. Yeah. Uh, so were you nine years old when you first started surfing? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a sequence of I'll, images. I'll, I'll, I'll correct you. I'll correct you there. I'll correct myself there. I would say that I was nine when I first got my first got a fiberglass surfboard. I, I'm pretty sure I surfed line boards prior to getting that surfboard. But around well, nine, yeah. You, there was a sequence of images in the book um, when you were 11, I think in Narrabin. And yeah. it's incredible. I mean, the fact that you even have photos of yourself surfing from that young of an age is unique, especially at a time when cameras weren't, you know, uh, everywhere. And the caption says that it's your second custom surfboard at the age of 11. <laughs> it's like... I was writing hand-me-downs for the first decade of my life. You know, I don't, I didn't get accustomed until I was in my twenties probably. Yeah. So yeah. my first board was, had a bright orange bottom. It was a cut down bolt. Okay. From a balsa mouth. And the second board was the first genuine custom that, that I had. So they were both customs, but the, the second board was, um, was, was my first genuine, like made from scratch fiberglass circle. Uh, and they they uh, they 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 resonated in pink, and now I, I, I'm not sure whether that was just to make me embarrassed or if it was to um, allow other servers to see me coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I was funny. 
for the times I was actually very short. You know, I was very small. I wasn't at nine years old. I was very small. They're one of you know always the smallest person in the water. You know, because there wasn't a lot of nine-year-olds surfing in those days. Okay. Um, you start the book in 1875, talking about your grandfather. How much research did you have to do, or was this all information that you had discussed with your family previously? Yeah, no, the, the, my family history, it, it, was, it was actually, it took a bit of work to get, to get to that point. I had a certain amount of stuff from a couple of old photo albums, um, but like um, in regards to hard facts about it, I had to do a bit of research. Fortunately, I found um, a family by the name of Pike, um, and they were, they were relatives of ours, distant, distant relatives. Um, and it, it, they had, because of their lineage, they had quite a lot of Cooney history in their in their in their files wherever they were. And fortunately, they were really generous, and they made all that stuff available to me. So, a lot of it came from. And um, Bob Pike was um, was one of the best. He was he was one of the, the the best big wave surfers in my area at the time. And I didn't even know we related. Um, so that was a nice thing to find out. And uh, he used to surf big, like places that broke only when it was very, very big. And he was a legend and, you know, very well known. Went to Hawaii, one of the first people to go to Hawaii from my area. Um, so it was nice to, to find out about that, um, but also to have access to their historical files and um, and, and then I did a little bit of extra research on top of that, just on the net and things like that, uh, with some help with John Ogden. Um, he, he researched a bit of my history as well to fatten it up a bit. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of a mixture of, of both. I didn't have a, a, a box of historical documentation just to, to pull from, or, and it wasn't in my memory bank, some of that stuff. So Yeah, that's um, what I was curious about is... Um you do recall a lot of detail from your childhood and I'm sure a lot of it you couldn't research. I was just surprised how much detail you could recall. Yeah. The, the historical stuff, obviously, you know, I didn't even know, you know, like it was, it was, had to, it had to be researched. I had to research it to make sure it was correct. What I knew of was some of the stuff that I was growing up with, the, the historical facts that have been passed to me verbally were incorrect. You know, so oh, wow. it was great to, you know, and I'd always live by certain information about my family, but um, uh, it was great. So it was great to get documentation that actually confirmed or denied whether the information I had was correct. So it was, it was really good to do that. And I think it's as accurate as I could, I could get it, you know. Did you have many surviving relatives that you're, you were able to uh, connect with and ask about some of the information? Yeah, but because of the nature of my family, it, it uh, the keeping of, of historical records was not particularly um, enjoyable for them. They didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't sort of, they didn't, they didn't go that way. Not like now, people have, well, you know, in a lot of families, they, 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 they like to have all that historical, the history and the family tree and all that stuff. That wasn't around when I was young. Okay. Um. You used the word catharsis in the introduction of the book. Can you tell me about the process of writing your story down? Well, I'm not 
technically I'm not an author, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I spend, you know, I spend a lot of time in publishing uh, via, basically via my introduction with tracks. Um, I moved on from there, from when I left tracks, it was, I, I ended up working for another very large publishing company, uh, multitasking on projects. I was essentially an art director, but um, I ended up writing, you know, I ended up, I was capable of writing because my English was quite good. I, my schooling hadn't been that great, but for some reason I, I took to the words. So I'd been writing a bit of stuff like um, surf stories and and reviews and things like that in, in different publications, including tracks. And, um, and so when it came to writing the book, um, it, I found it slow. I, I was quite a slow writer, I thought. Um, and it was, um, but it was nice to, it was, it was enjoyable. I enjoyed it, um, but it wasn't like it was just free flowing. And I think public, now I speak to other authors, they say, no, it never is. When you're writing something, you're always, there's always some doubt in your mind of whether what you've just written is worth reading, how it, how it, how it fits together, how it flows, all those sorts of considerations. Um, but, um, yeah, I did mention that it, it, that it felt cathartic and, and cathartic because uh, a bit because of the historical aspects of it, you know, the, the, as we were talking about before, you know, about my history. But it was also cathartic to put pen to paper about other um, facts or, 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 or instances of my life that, that um, I've never documented before. So, and, and particularly right into surfing. Um, cathart cathartic because they had just been a distant memory for so long. So kind of reliving them allowed yeah, some sort of. Until you've sat down and written a book about yourself. It, it's, you know, it's okay to sit down and write a book about someone else. But when you're sitting down writing a book about yourself, it's sort of, you see yourself perhaps in slightly different ways as you, as you okay. get through the book, you know. And, it's, and so sometimes I guess you just have to face some facts about yourself that you didn't actually dwell on before, you know. Interesting. Uh, did you like what you had to face? Oh yeah, sort of. I mean, as a, as a grommet, I was really annoying. I was, I'm sure I was just so annoying. Like, yeah. and you know, I always thought I was, you know, God's child, you know. But um, and but it was, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm sure that parts of my life have annoyed the shit out of some people, you know. Totally. And you know, I'm sure I was arrogant at times, and I was this, and I was that. And it's only when you're actually writing about it that you realize some of these things. Imagine what uh, today's kids will have to reconcile in 50 years because they're shooting selfie videos of themselves, posting it everywhere on social media, you know? Yeah, look, I, I, I shake my head about some of the clothes I wore. Yeah, let alone, totally. Let, let alone walking around, you know, with a camera in my gobble, you know, in my face or you know, a, fat, a lot of camera in my gob, in my mouth, which is what they do on waves now, you know. Like totally. Got, you know, and, and like, what are you thinking? You know, what are you thinking? What do you think that footage is going to make it anywhere at all, like other than your lounge room? No. And probably. even then, they are probably embarrassed to look at it, or they should be often. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think they're going to be, I think they're going to have some, some, they're going to have some things to, 
reconcile with as they get older, I'm sure. For sure. Um, so what, in, what inspired you to write the book then? Um, well, it was really a conversation between me and John Ogden. I came to see John Ogden at, um, at his house um, at, and, um, and because I respected him as a black and white photographer, I had negs, black and white negs that I'd had in, you know, that I'd carried around with me for 40 years. Um, that pretty much documented parts of the track's story and, uh, you know, a, a confined area of, and, and I just, because I just liked black and white photography, it was probably a hangover from having to work on, uh, on a black and white magazine tracks, you know, tracks magazine. Uh, we were just shooting black and white. That's all we're shooting. And so I fell in love with black and white photography and um, some of John's stuff was great. So I, so I really went to him to say, you know, and it was, we're in lockdown, we're in, you know, we're in, um, you know, the COVID thing was, was appearing. And so, um, it, you know, it was sort of like, what, what am I going to do, you know? And so it's, so I sort of went to him to say, John, uh, what do I do with these photographs? And um, when we sort of talked more and he heard more about my story, uh, he, uh, he said, well, you just, what you need to do is you need to sit down and write a book. So, yeah. So that's what I did. Um, I'll ask you about a couple of stories throughout the book that piqued my interest. Um, one of them was you were talking about trying to get across the border to into Queensland for a contest, where in the end you only ended up catching one wave. But what stood out to me about that was that there seemed to be a distinct difference between the culture of Queensland versus the culture that you were immersed in, in New South Wales. Um, is that true? And can you explain those differences and what, what you talk, year would you, that have been? You're talking about the surfing culture? Yeah. 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 Yes. You, you, you picked up on that really well, that the, the, the surfing culture in Queensland was all, always, in my opinion, and from the guys from the southern states, you know, like the, you know, the, the surfers, Oh, you know, like the Ted Spencers and the and the Wayne Lynches and the semi underground people of of the world who who were really successful at, at in competition surfing even, but gravitated more towards the free surfing thing. Um, the the Queensland environment in surfing was always highly competitive and very contest driven. You know, whether it be at amateur level through the clubs, or later on when it when it became, but that was the main difference is that people coming out of Victoria and New South Wales were very much in that, if you like, morning of the earth type approach to lifestyle and, and that, whereas the Queenslanders were much more um, financially motivated and, 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 and success motivated um, than, than their, their southern state brothers. You know? So, um, so yeah, there was that difference. Um, so that quite competitive, uh, concerned about the way they look, all those sorts of things, where, you know, most of the people I was hanging around with, they didn't care how they looked, you know, really. You know, they yeah. just, as long as they had a pair of board shorts and, 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 a, and a surfboard and a T-shirt, I mean, that was fine. Yeah. Yeah. Thong, thong's optional. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the, image, the imagery in the book um sums that up really well too kind of the picture that you were painting along the way in new south wales 
and then getting across the border and it's like an image of uh rabbit you know just looking super cool with sunglasses on and dead serious and i think pt and ian cairns also standing there just fully chiseled and looking like they had a look looking a lot more athletic i guess it is yeah yeah looking much more groomed you know yeah. we're all a shabby bunch coming up from the south you know like <laughs> the first trips i did up to queensland was with cole smith you know um, yeah ex-australian champion and, and you know highly highly expensive highly highly respected uh, innovator of 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 backhand uh rios and and you know almost aerial maneuvers uh 360 degree turns on waves and um you know full rail turns doing 360s um, aggressive behavior on a wave and, and he was he was shabby like he you know he's, he never shaved he, you know he had his long hair goatee you know and uh it's like he was um he had, had he had a really nice personality but he was in the water he was another person as well he was really aggressive and um you know don't get him away you know, pay your dues before you talk to you know, pay your dues before I'll give you a wave, you know, that sort of thing, that sort of attitude. Um, so he took me to Queensland the first time. And, um, you know, we, we saw Rabbit and you know, all those guys, you know, the, 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 the Cooley kids and stuff. We were surfing, surfing with them. We stayed on the beach, stayed on the, on the main road at uh, Coolangatta, went to the same clubs as, as they did, even though I was underage. I, I got in somehow. Um, but, um, you know, we were we were sort of compared to their approach to surfing, which was seemed to us to be very clean cut. Um, our our approach to it was, was a bit different. Yeah. Uh, when he was doing those carving backside three sixties, was that on a single fin? Yes. Crazy. Yeah, it was gent- usually on his forehand when he was doing that, but when he was his backhand attack was just. Uh, there was no one attacking the wave on his backhand the, the way Cole was. That, um, I watched him surf Angari one day on the way up to, and his backhand attack at Angari, I don't know if you know the wave at all. Yeah. You know the, yeah. And it's a sort of a bowling wave and um, um, to, to an extent, and, and his backhand attack there was, was just, I'd never, I don't think at that stage I'd ever seen anyone actually come on a back on their backhand, uh, be able to come out of a massive bottom turn, go up and 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 go out to do a cutback, but not just do a cutback. You do a cutback and then and then basically pull it up into the top of the curl and ride the curl back down in a sort of a one eighty type of um, S bend type manoeuvre, you know, and which was in those days. That was pretty radical. Like that was totally. pretty radical stuff for a backhander on heading Gary. Yeah. Um, do you remember the first time you met Michael Peterson? Well, again, it was like Mike was around. He was he was like part of the furniture, like we were. You know, he was like part of the contest furniture and 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 just part of the the East Coast of Australia furniture, like as the East Coast of Australia. While well, it, it's sounds like it's a, it's a big place culturally in those days it was actually quite small mm. there wasn't you know there wasn't hordes of the best known surfers in the world flooding around it was you know it was it was really like clusters of of the best surfers in australia you know? so it was um it, and so 
really you get to towns and uh, if the conditions were right, everyone was onto the weather maps and stuff like that, which were pretty archaic in those days, you know, they were, but they knew if something was coming, they'd, a lot of them would head to the same spot. If they knew it was going to be a, a cyclone swell, you'd go, you'd, you'd head straight to Queensland, you wouldn't stop. Um, if it was a, if it was a coming out of the north, and if it was, um, if it was a big southerly swell, you'd go straight to Lennox Head um, because that's what it breaks best on. Um, a, a, an east coast low that sort of sits off the coast a bit and pumps east swell, you'd go to Angari. So everyone knew these things, you know, like uh, the Spencers and my brother and uh, Nat and all those people were right on to, you know, what was coming and they'd time their run and, and, and just make an educated guess as which, which were the best places to, to serve. So um, so Michael was was part of that part of that uh, you know scene. He was just part. He was there, like he was part of it. You know, he was a couple of years older than me, so he got his car earlier. Um, so he was starting to hit spots that uh, that we surfed early, and um, and and timing his run, going to not just sitting up at the Gold Coast. <coughs> waiting for it to happen, he'd, he'd, he'd move around, and so we'd run into him at Angari, you know, run into him at Lennox, you know, when we got when we got to the Gold Coast, he'd be around because you know the only reason you're going there is to surf, and and that's all he did, you know. So so he, I sort of grew up with him a bit, you know. Like it was, I don't remember how old I was when I first met him. I was pretty young, um, but it had to be on those trips that I was making, like a, the first trips I was making around uh, 12, 13. So he would have been maybe 14, 15. What about uh, Greeno? Do you have any first initial well, memories of seeing Greeno? Yeah, well, George was around a lot. Like he was, he was, he was around. He, yeah, he was, he was in Australia like pretty early. I think he got here in 1968 or something, something like that. Okay. Uh, yeah, something, something like that. But, but obviously his his, his legend uh, preceded him. I mean, he was he was well known before he got here. Um, just in the nature of his, his, his weirdness and, yeah. and, you know, surf, surf ethic and, and surf development and, and, you know, weird ideas that work, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And obviously Nat and all those guys fell in love with that, you know, because and, and tried to, you know, and <coughs> eventually successfully succeeded in, in, in taking on board some of George's revolutionary ideas, you know, and, and it worked. They, they worked. Um, and of course, he was in some of the early Bob Evans movies here in Australia. Uh, his movie *Innermost Limits of Pure Fun* was always one of my favourite surf movies, and still is. Um, and um, so, I think I watched *The Innermost Limits of Pure Fun* at Collaroy Cinema um, when I was still living there. So that was that was like early. That was uh, so. And I sat in the aisles. Because <laughs> <laughs> as I was always. Yeah, I was the grommet, so I, I got... You should have you done it last week at the 50th anniversary no, just tempted. for old time's sake. I was tempted. No, I sat in... I actually sat in the theatre up the back. I sat up the back and uh, to watch it, the halfway, anyway. And the seats... Were, and it was in this really old rock and roll type theatre, which was really perfectly suited to this show. Yeah. And I sat in the seat, and, and the old leather seats, and when I sat in it, the bottom just went into a big D shape. So I was sitting there with my knees up and my bum stuck in the stuck in the D of the leather seat. Yeah. 
but that was great. It was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Greeno though, give me a, give me a Greeno story and perhaps it's the one that's in the book. Yeah. Well, George, I'd known George for a while. I'd seen him, we'd seen him around. I'd surfed with him at Lennox. I'd, I'd, um, you know, in, uh, with Nat and those guys, they were all hanging out together and he was sort of, George was really, had really taken up residence in Byron Bay. That was his favourite area, quite rightly so, you know, and um, he'd, he'd get down to, he'd get down to Angara and we'd just see each other, get to know each other and talk and stuff like that. He'd be doing the most of the talking, but, you know, to a 15-year-old, I didn't really have much to say to George Green. <laughs> yeah. I'd just sit there and listen. But, um, but yeah, so we... So yeah, the the time I hitchhiked, I think at that stage I was, yeah, I was only just fourteen or something, and wow. decided it was a good idea to to jump, to get someone to give me a lift to the to, to the high the Pacific Highway up the coast, because I needed to get to a contest. Um, so I hitchhiked from Sydney to Queensland um, through all sorts of different little adventures um, that, I, that I had on the way, and um, finally got up there. Um, I basically got to the contest 15 minutes before it started. I was exhausted and I paddled out, caught one wave in sloppy conditions. And that was the end of my, <laughs> that was the end of that contest. So I had, and I had to get back to Sydney for some reason. So, so I, I uh, so I, I rang around and, and tried to get, a lift. I got a lift to uh, somehow. I got a lift to down the coast a bit to close to where George was, and I found out he was going coming back to Sydney. So he kindly offered to to, to put me in the car, and because you know, again, I still didn't have my li- I didn't have a license, so I was hitching and doing whatever I had to do. So I yeah. So he he, he put me in his, this old. I think it was an old sort of Dodge or something like it was a real American Ameri- big American car. It was like a a lounge a lounge chair on wheels. It was. Yeah, and big seats and all that sort of coping. No, no seat belts, just one big, like a lounge chair on the on the front seat. And so we headed down the highway. I didn't know what I was in for. He uh, he 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 bought a, a packet of um, packet of nuts and raisins and dried fruit and all that sort. And and um, sat it on the seat between us, you know, before we left. And of course, I didn't have any money. I was so I, I was sponging off everyone, and and. Um, so I didn't have any food or anything on me. So that was about it. That was the only thing that was in the car. And so we we headed down the coast and George, you know, we talked about, we had so much time to talk about stuff because apart from being a 10-hour trip, George wouldn't travel more than 40 k's, 40, 40 miles an hour in a 60-mile-an-hour zone. He'd still travel. Oh, my gosh. So he refused to go any faster than that, no matter where, no matter what sort of road it was. And so that extended the that extended the trip by a bit, and we you know we talked about this. We're always talking. Whenever I speak to George, he was always we were always talking about design and you know conditions at different breaks and who does what, who, who surfs how, and and you know all that sort of stuff. So long conversations, you know. And so it really took a long time to get down the coast, and I appreciated the lift, but by the time I got down there, I was I was. I was uh, really struggling with the amount of nuts and dried fruit I'd eaten. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty crook. We got to John Whitzig's place and all I could do was hit the toilet and 
try and get rid of some of it. <laughs> it yeah. Just, it was really, it was really punishing. <laughs> just, I was embarrassed that, that I had to, that I turned up at John Witzig's place like that. Yeah. Understandable though. Um, so you talked about your first trip abroad was when you were 15. I presume that was to Bali with Albie for the film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What was your awareness of Bali before you went? Did you nothing. know it as a surf no. destination? Nothing at all. No, nothing. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the culture. Or, you know, but it was again. I've been I've been surfing, going away with Albie for almost a couple of years prior to that. Um, you know, off and on in between his deadlines and things like that. So we did a lot of trips. I asked him the other day, "Do you remember how many trips we did? You got any idea how many trips we did up the coast?" And he said, "No." So seriously, don't yeah, a wow. lot yeah, yeah. And so I was again, you know, baggage baggage in the in the seat. But fortunately, I I, I was of some use because I could surf. So um, you know, I was just I just it was Bali was like he came to see mum because um, I was still living with my mother, and uh, he he asked her for permission to take me to Bali, you know. And of course, she said, "Yeah, fine," but it meant that I had to leave school, you know, pretty much. Um, so, and so we've got got all that sorted out. And um, uh, and when when he basically asked me, I, I said, "To me, it was just like him asking me to go up the coast with him again. It was just like another trip. This time, it happened to be in a plane, you know. So I didn't even question. I didn't ask. I don't remember asking questions about what it was like in Bali or." Anything like that. I was just there. I was just along for the along for the ride, and it was really enjoyable. And yeah, what was your experience once you landed and were immersed into the culture? And when you saw the waves, what was your take on all of it? Well, we didn't actually see good waves for a little while. It was like okay, yeah, like we surfed. We surfed Kuta Beach, which is like a, a you know flat bottom sand thing that rarely gets any real length in its banks. So it's a, you know we sort of fluffed around there for a while and then as some swell picked up we noticed that Kuta Reef we, we could see Kuta Reef from the beach actually feathering so we thought we'd better go out there and have a look what that was doing so we surfed Kuta Reef for, for a couple of days and that was fun you know and we're thinking well what else is there and so we ended up going out on you know Albie and I went out on Two motorbikes again. That's another first with Albie. It's, it's, uh, it was the first time I'd ever ridden a motorbike, so so I was um, so I wasn't very good at it. But yeah, the uh, but he he led the way, and we we got out to got out to um, got out onto the bucket at uh, near Uluwatu, and and uh, Albie had been out there before to the temple, and he'd, he'd sort of sussed out that there's there's potential like further down the reef, and and we stopped sort of somewhere short of the, the temple this time and, and and went in and just had a bit of a, a nosy around and and um, and got back that night to Kuda. Uh, took us all day to sort of to, to finish the, the, the ride. Um, and when we got back to Kuda, we went to dinner with the guys and I remember very clearly uh, someone said to him, well, what did you, you find today to Albert? And he said, I think we found something. Yeah. And so they got organised and... and uh, because in those days, Bali was, was, you know, it took a little while to get organised into the BMOs and the, just the transportation on how you're going to get dropped off, how you get picked up, how you're going to, what food can you take, what, you know. And so 
So it took them a couple of days to get sorted, and we ended up. That's when we went back out to it. That's when we went out and, and walked into a lot too, and uh, realised it was better than we even thought. Um, it probably goes without stating, but I'll state it for the listeners that these stories are detailed in the book. And so they're well worth doing a deep dive into. Um, had Uluwatu ever been surfed before, do you think? Um, there's been speculation by, by a number of people about that. You know, there's never been any proof of it. Um, by the way, the natives reacted to me, to, to, the whole, to the whole crew that went out there. <coughs> you know, they were, they, were, they were scared. I mean, they, they sort of they couldn't work out why these idiots were paddling out in the water that they would never, ever go out swimming. Like, you know, they're not, they weren't big swimmers in those days. They used to pick around the reef at low tide and to, to catch these little fish and stuff like that. They, they weren't fishing off the reef even. You know, they were too scared of the waves and they probably lost a few people, you know, to the For ocean. Sure. Um, and also the other things out there, there were, you know, there, there's, there is sea snakes out there. That, you know, there's, there's, there's some dangerous stuff hanging around out there if you're not really aware of it and, and how to deal with it. Um, so they were, they were, you could tell that they were nervous that we were actually paddling out there. Um, but when we, by the t- once we got out there and we started surfing and getting a few waves, the, the, the reaction on the, on, the, on the cliffs were just like, they, they'd just cheer the entire time, like they'd be waving their arms and cheering as we were riding, as we were right away. And then you'd, you'd kick off, kick out and, and start paddling out and it'd be dead quiet, they'd be dead silent. You know, they wouldn't, wow. not a noise, but when you're standing up, dancing on waves is the way that they translated it. Um, it was, yeah, they were, they were really excited. They didn't look like they'd seen that before. Yeah. So, so, and I've never seen, there's never been any documentation, you know, there's nothing written or, or photographs, no photographs to substantiate any earlier things. So my approach to it is we were the first people to be documented to surf Uluwatu. Um, and, and I think that's a fairly diplomatic way to get out of it. Yeah, and that, that makes sense. Um, I'm always interested when you have photographs of something or with this, you have a film of it. Sometimes your memory just becomes the image that you've seen so many times over the years. How vivid are your original memories or have they been replaced by the film version of the memories? Um, the, good question. The, the, my memories are based on a 15, <coughs> excuse me, on a 15-year-old kid. And I had the luxury I had with, compared to all the other people that were on that trip is that I was that much younger than them. So my actual... and. I wasn't very distracted by the cultural um, aspects of Bali. I was only there for one reason, and that was to go surfing. And it not, I wasn't there to go surfing just because I was taken there by Albie to film. I was going surfing because that's what I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to do. So I was very focused on that. And, um, and so my, my memories are, are, um, are very vivid, and they have been. Uh, over over the years, uh, and I have put pen to paper about my 
recollections of that trip prior to doing the book. So I had reference to go back to and say, well, is that really the way I remember it? And so I believe I think that I think my recollections are really more practical, more, more sort of on the ground memories than what's in the movie. Because for me it was um, it was probably slightly embarrassing to, to actually sit there and, and watch myself on screen. Uh, because I never really thought that I was as, as good at surfing as some of my peers, you know, like the Terry Fitzgeralds, the Nat Youngs, the Ted Spencers, the Wayne Lynch, you know, and to see me up there getting pride of place was pretty embarrassing. I, and I actually just found it a bit embarrassing. So, and I, I, never, I never really felt uh, in, in some way, I, you know, I'll take it now. I'm, you know, I'm 66 years old. I'll take it. I'll take the credit. But um, I never really felt that I was uh, you know, competitive to the way that those guys served. I thought they were much better surfers than I was. Well, what did that film do for you as a surfer once it was released? Uh, well, the film's always been very kind to me. That it's, um, you know, anyone. I, <laughs> Talking to Justin Mish, who, who redigitized this the film, uh, so it's, it's like um, you know anyone who's had any, any surfers that had anything to do with Morning of the Earth have felt the sun on their back, you know. So um, and I believe that to be true that the the the, the ripple effect that Morning of the Earth has created is not only um, exposure, but it's more. It's always it's always nice and positive it's really positive it's all positive feedback it's it's you don't have uh, the competitive nature there's no competitive nature in the film it's all about surfing to surf and uh, that's the conversation and you know it's it's always i very rarely have i had any sort of negative comment to me about about morning of the earth and it has opened doors i mean it's made people you know they, they they're happy to talk to me because of um, because of my involvement in Morning of the Earth, yeah, so as a surfer. Do you get um, oppor sponsor opportunities, job opportunities when you came home? Um, not necessarily, no. Uh, I, Rip Curl was sponsoring me as well as Hutchinson Surfboards when I went to Bali. Uh, but <clears throat> Rip Curl didn't have to spend much because there was, I didn't have any, they didn't make board shorts and all they made was wetsuits. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't need a wetsuit. <laughs> But it was more product, yeah. And Hutchinson surfboards, yeah. Well, they they were making my boards for a while, so. Um, but it did make doors easier for me to to be able to get, um, you know, help in that way, like to to you know to be able to get product and stuff like that from from surf companies. Sure, you'll need some product, mate. Yeah, go for it. You know, but it wasn't it wasn't like anyone walked up with a with a contract and said, yeah, look, because those days that that wasn't what was happening that the surf companies didn't have the money they didn't have the resources to sponsor a surfer to go surfing right and that's, um it I, seemed I like you were i did I, I did get a small stipend from um hutchinson surfboard when we first got back which sort of kept me going for <clears throat> for a few months while i was up up the coast at that um at uh, Angari after the after the morning of the earth, and um, so that as far as sponsor, actual dollar sponsorship, that's probably the only dollar sponsorship I've got out of out of uh, surfing 
in my life. Uh, the rest of it's all been work. Right. And a decade or so of that was spent at Tracks Magazine? Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You have photographs. Obviously, you said that you started this book process with a cache of black and white photos that you had come across and that you had shot. And some of those are included in the book. Um, how did you discover photography? Um. Photography discovered me. I went to work for Tracks Magazine essentially to sell ads. Um, okay. They gave me a base job because um, I was working in the city selling jeans. And one of a, a good mate, uh, Frank Pithers, who I knew well already uh, from Tracks, from spending time at Tracks and the other guys. But Frank walked in one day and saw me, found me working there uh, and bought some jeans off me. And um, and came back about two weeks later, said, mate, do you want a job? You know, up on the northern beaches, on the beach, you can surf whenever you want, as long as we meet deadline. Uh, go out and talk to a few advertisers and see what you can get in money. And immediately I went, sure, not a problem. That'd be great. <laughs> so so back to Whale Beach, back up to the northern beaches instead of being in the city. It was terrific. Yeah. So that's how it started there. And, uh, and part of that job is ultimately they... Not straight away, but eventually they, they sort of said, well, we need you to, instead of having to lug a photographer around, how about you just take some shots? Albie, Albie gave me a, an old Nikon, an old bashed up Nikon with a 50mm lens on it and said, here's some film, here's the camera, just go and shoot what you can, see what happens. So I sort of, it was pretty much that. That's where I first started taking photos. Got it. I thought based on... Um the imagery that was in the book that maybe you had discovered photography first when you were young. No. Got it. No. No. Um, I mean, the, the, the experience of being around people like Albie and uh, Frank right. and, and John Witzig and their dedication to the, to the art and to the, you know, to the, to the finery of, of photography and, and how it all works. <clears throat> um, was, I'm sure I picked some stuff up from them. And Albie, you know, like particularly 
know, Albie was always talking about light and stuff when he was doing footage of Morning of the Earth and stuff like that. So I did, I think I picked up some basic concept of photography, but the, the, the practical side of it, of actually taking the photos is something I just was uh, handed. And, but I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I started to really enjoy it. Can you tell me about uh, your time that you spent with Hunter S. Thompson? Yeah. Hunter. 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 Yeah, Hunter's like, I think it was at one of his times, like he came out for a book launch, a big book tour, strangely enough, yeah, uh, where the buffalo runs. So, oh, yeah. Which is the book after um, um, where the, uh, Fear and Loathing. And um, <coughs> a, a, a promoter, um, who put the show on knew us from tracks. Uh, he was he was associated with tracks, and, and he saw tracks as a possible uh, as a possible uh, promotional exercise. So so they they invited invited me to go and 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 see Hunter and, and all that stuff. So I'd never read his book. I, I when I went, I was just going as okay, it's a free gig, but you know, I'd go along, you know, and see see what's happening. Um, and before uh, I sat down, they had a reserved seat for me and um, and I was going to sit down and the, the, the promoter came out off, st- off stage and grabbed me and said, come out, come backstage and meet Hunter before the start. <coughs> and um, so that was my my introduction to Hunter and he was backstage doing what Hunter does and, and, um, and you know, getting ready to go up and do a book talk and... Um, and I didn't get, I didn't get, I stayed backstage for the entire, um, you know, watched the show, but from backstage. And so when he came off, we chatted more and, and, and it all got friendly. And he, and he was, he, I felt like he was, he was stuck in the city. Like he didn't really want to be just stuck in the city, you know, when he wasn't on stage. And so I gave him the option of, of A, having a look around Sydney uh, around the beaches at Sydney, in, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and and B coming out, I was I was living at Whale Beach at the time, so and and come and stay at Whale Beach if you want, you know, like and, and just chill out and and uh, and he came out and stayed for a week and uh, and I, just, I chauffeured him uh, around the eastern suburbs of Sydney in my old Holden that I'd re- re-sprayed and it had a couple of but like it had wings on it on the back, you know, small wings, but Reminded Hunter of his Dodge at home, and um, and uh, so there was Hunter perched up in the back uh, with his with his cigarette holder and his hat on, and um, and me and the, the lady I was going out with at the time in the front seat, and it was um, it, and it was there was a lot of commentary as we were driving around, and and uh, you know, and he really appreciated sort of just getting away from the glare and away from the city. And to sort of just see real life, and and so when you come up to Whale Beach, yeah, we just hung around, and you know, and and God, what do you do for a week with Hunter S. Thompson? I mean, you, you know, it's a pretty interesting. It was a pretty interesting week, and you know, to I, I to recount too many of the stories, I don't think I could because there was plenty of them. Like he's a great yeah. story. Yeah. Did he take any interest in surfing? Not necessarily. No, he was more. Well, ultimately, Hunter was a reporter. Like he was a he was an observer, you know. And so, and I like that about him, you know, because I do that. I do a bit of that myself, you know. 
I'm a good listener and I'm a, and I, and I like observing things in, a, in detail. And Hunter was very similar. So he was just, I think he was just more interested in, in the, the, what, what people were up to, what, 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 does, what does everyone else do? You know? Yeah. He knew what he did. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll encourage listeners to uh, get the book to, le- to hear about a similar experience that you had with Bill Murray, who came out um, to represent or to play Hunter in the film version of that book. So you don't have to retell it here, but they should definitely go read about it. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, given your time with Tracks and then working in the publishing industry after that, you did a great job explaining the role that Tracks played for surf culture at that time. And we've seen surf magazines not really make the transition successfully into the digital era. And even the ones that still exist, they don't necessarily play the same role that they did in that era that you were working for the magazines. So I'm curious from your perspective, do you have any idea what missteps were made or are there any magazines that you think are doing a great job now kind of representing to surf culture what they used to? Well, yeah, good good question, mate. Yeah, I think, I think some, like, I think there's two markets now, and it's one is the digital market, um, and and one is the the independent publisher role, and I think both of them have a have a place. Um, personally, I like because I come out of magazines and come out of publishing. I like the smell of ink and paper, so you know it's just something that that, that gives me a buzz when I'm going to read something, um, and so I much prefer to go for <coughs> hard copy, you know, hard printed copies of things that I find them easier and probably just more familiar way to read. Um, and, and so I think the, the independent publishers are probably, uh, are, are probably staying a little truer to the essence of surfing um, and perhaps the online guys are uh, making the most of, of revenue that, that is now diverted into, you know, the, the, internet market you know and so um i I think it's i mean i I really i really admire the tracks guys for for uh publishing independently and to still to to have a magazine of that history um be be allowed to exist you know um it's the same as the film like it, it it lives next to the film and it's um and it's just it's just reassuring to see that it actually still can survive. Um, the online things come and go. I mean, you see, you see magazines, and they can come and go in a, in a second, in a split second. You know, they're, they're, they're either here or they're gone. You know, at least with printed publications, you've got some you can you can refer to the refer to it. You can find it again. You know? um, so I don't have I don't have a, a sort of a real opinion about the. The other publications or the, the other online stuff, I find it hard to regard them as, as as magazines. You know, I know they call themselves magazines, but I have a bit of trouble just mentally absorbing that. So uh, I only regard a magazine as being a, a hard printed copy of a, of a publication. That's a magazine. You know? Yeah. And so the online thing to me, I don't know what the name is, but it's uh, I think it's something different to magazine. Well, 
you know, I feel like tracks, um, surfing world, the surfer's journal, they're all still in print and they're still telling the same stories or, you know, uh, they have the same ethos and the same kind of storytelling that they did in their heyday. But there's now so many other inputs in the surfing world as well. So when I was young, I had to get my surf information from that magazine. And so its influence was so much greater. And now surfing world shows up and it's the same thing it always was, but it exists in a different world and it doesn't have the influence that it had. And so I don't know of a surf company or a surf magazine that's made that transition to where they're still printing the magazine, but then they also have the digital footprint and influence um, that represents what the magazine used to represent. But there is an example outside of surfing and that's National Geographic. Like National Geographic had the print publication from my youth, but they've successfully transitioned into a television station, probably more than one now. Uh, All of their social media properties are all really well curated. They tell really great story and it just represents exactly what the magazine always did, but on a different medium, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I've been a big fan of National Geographic. I, I was a subscriber for a long time um, until I had to move house a few times and I just couldn't take them all with me. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, they, I think you, I, I, I have to agree with you there. National Geographic have done a great job and, and because they had such a strong ethos, they, they had that, that uh, you know, they, they're really documentary, you know. They, they, totally. They, yeah, so... They, they, were, they were reporting, you know, more or less reporting rather than um, making stuff up or, or, or embellishing stories or right. know, using, using visuals that weren't actually something to do with the article. You know? And so, yeah, yeah, I respect it a lot for that. Yeah. And the fact that they're still on newsstands is, you know, incredible. Yeah. It's timeless because of that, mm. you know, those stories will resonate regardless of whatever trend is happening. Um, have you gone back to Bali often since the filming of Morning of the Earth? Yeah, I've been back to Bali a lot. Yeah, yeah, I did particularly like for the first, you know, my, my golden days are right from 1971 to 1981. That's what I call it, you know, the you know, golden years in Bali uh, because there was, by, it, even by 1981, there wasn't really a whole lot of people surfing on a daily basis. So it was, um, you know, the Indos hadn't, I mean, the Indos had only just started surfing, so they weren't dominating. Um, so you could still get out of Padang and, and stuff and surf on your own or surf with a couple of mates. Um, <coughs> uh, but then I started to look further afield. I um, sort of I only went to Bali really if I if it was necessary for work or you know for someone I had to see or something like that, and I'd, I'd have a surf there. But um, I you know. Started venturing to the Mentwise and to Maldives, um, you know those sorts of places. Um, and the Mentwise is just endless. It's just like there's so much there that it would take a lot, or take more than a lifetime to actually spend that much time to to find to, to actually go to all of those places. So, so it's um, you know, so it's you know it's been just a, a different a different journey, pretty much all on boats. Um, 
you know, whereas with Bali, it was it was just more land based. So it was a different a different experience. But um, I don't know. Every time I surf a wave in Indo, it always reminds me of Bali. Yeah. No matter where I am. <laughs> sure. Um, how is the how is writing this book? Has it reconnected you with family at all? Telling your family story. Yeah, it has. Yeah, it's it, it's um, yeah, it has. It, it's forced me to reconnect with. Um, a couple of in particular a couple of um, family members yeah and um and one i hadn't seen for uh my oldest brother i hadn't seen for uh we worked out nearly 40 years 45 years um the family thought he was dead oh my gosh yeah we all believed that he was dead um well i did but i was the youngest so i was getting told that that's what happened that was the situation you know and um so so it was great to reconnect, and uh, uh, he's coming along as his as his current uh, reincarnation as a woman. He's coming along to the Morning of the Earth showing at um, Randwick, uh, the, the, the third showing of the film. Yeah, that's incredible. So this is Rita, right? Rita, yeah. Um, who you do talk about in the book, and um, so has that been have. Has she read the book? Has your family approved of the book? Um, Has it all been positive? She's had the book for a while. I don't know whether she's finished it because um, uh, we've only been distributing it for a short period of time. So yeah, people, some people just don't read that quickly. Um, in regards to my other siblings, uh, uh, my, uh, I've got two other sisters who have only just got their book and they're not, they're not big readers and they're not... Um, they're probably different culturally to to me. My uh, Butch and myself were probably the black sheep of the family. Yeah, yeah. In regards to surfing terms, like surfing wasn't actually, you know, the most respectable thing to do with your life when I was totally. growing up. And we liked that. Yeah, we yeah. enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell me what's your relationship like with surfing now? Are you sixty six years old? Yeah. And how often are you surfing? Well, I'm not surfing much. Um, I've found COVID very different, difficult to deal with because I'm in the city. Uh, I found it, I didn't really, as you get older, you sort of get warier of health conditions. Um, I've got a couple of, I've got a couple of, um, well, I've got um, bone growth in my, in my neck and stuff, which is giving me good grief. Um, so it makes it fairly painful for me. Um, to paddle so I have to put up with that and also the the actual number of people in the water and and you know the the change in self-gratification of you know the, the whole environment in the water as we we're talking about before how many photos can you take yourself I mean seriously is that what you go surfing for I don't know you know, I don't yeah. know if that's um, if I can you know if I can it's really only been the last year that, that I've struggled a bit in the water. And I'm also of the mind that if I can't surf my best, well, I don't really want to be out there. Yeah. Mm. So I, are I you, I, are you resigned to it or are you struggling through that realization? No, no, I'm not resigned to it. I'm just sort of taking the time with it. I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. I've, I've had a life of surfing and um, my body's telling me that maybe, you know, I should have looked after it a bit more. You know, because they're pretty much all surf. My only problems are basically surf related. Oh, you know, really? 
physically yeah it's uh you know the the there's some aches and pains that have come from you know the the rigors of surfing every day for the majority of life so i can only i can only you know be grateful for where I, you know the number of waves i've caught and the number of places i've been and um and you know i'll probably you know in the right environment you know the right place and time yeah i'll probably have a chart you know i'll probably get out there but it's not really priority is there um in hindsight is there any cross training exercise and or diet that you would have implemented to uh extend your longevity um uh, not really i wasn't huge on training i mean my training was surfing um i i i did a i did a lot i did a yoga a yoga i found to be pretty good uh the physical aspects of yoga i really enjoyed and that did you know like i i, I utilized that to 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 limber up and do those sorts of things but in regards to like overdoing i i, I think personally i don't like to, i i don't understand overtraining i don't really understand that because you see people break down with it you see them you know struggle with it uh, you know elite sports people particularly uh, but i never saw the point in that um you know swimming i used to swim a lot like you know to outside of surfing like swimming still pools and things like that so th probably those two swimming swimming um you know doing laps the black line and um and yoga were probably the two things that i did that i did participate in that, that i think would help you surfing yeah um the final question for everybody interviewed is about the last surfboard that you rode whose boards are you riding at this point well, at the moment, I've got I've got um, the last board I surfed was was a uh, was a five foot eight um, five foot eight Aussie right um, sort of zappy little surfboard that came out of America. I can't remember the brand name, but it was Aussie gifted it to me on a, on a birthday because uh, Aussie's good mates with with my son, with one of my sons, and um, and so. The last, the last surf I had was on on five foot eight, and it was it was like, oh, I mean, it had had triple flyers or something on it, and you know it was uh, so zappy little surf. I didn't catch anything on it. It's like a small whiteboard. Yeah, I'm struggling to think whose boards he rides. I've seen him riding boards that look like that all the time, but I don't know what shape. He rides a whole lot of different people, but he had a, he had an okay. American company doing 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 his boards for him at that stage. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but he's he's work he works with, he works with different people all the time. Joel Fitzgerald. Yeah. And uh, there's there's another couple of companies that he does stuff with, uh, but you'd never know whose boards he was riding because of because he covers it up with all his artwork. That's okay. That makes perfect sense. That's why I don't know. <laughs> but the, how'd the board go? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I love that board. You know, that was that was, was one of my favorite boards. Like. Uh, and it went so well in, you know, it was quick, maneuverable. Yeah. And could hold a line. So yeah, it was, um, it was, yeah, no, I really enjoyed that board. I ran a five foot eight. That was great. But that was only, as you say, it was only, that's only in the last 12 months. So I haven't, it's not like I could totally given up. And yeah. I think at, six, at 66, surfing a five eight, there's not many of them, those people around. 
No, that's, that is surprising. Um, I, I fully understand your lack of desire based on having the ability to surf good quality waves for so long and without crowds, because it's a lot harder for me to muster desire at the age of 40, unless the waves are good. You know, I'll take my dog to the beach and it's like, unless it's shoulder high or head high, I'm just going to walk the dog instead of going surfing because there's no point in me getting out there for waist high surf. And believe me, mate, it, once you get to my age, once you're sort of like approaching 67 or, you know, you're approaching, got caught 70, once you're starting to approach 70, some of the important things in life may not be what you what they were before, you know, like I used to think it was important that I just surf everything, you know, surf, 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 surf. But now it's, um, you know, you know, watch and listen. I do a lot of watching and I do a lot of listening. Interesting. Very good. Well, lesson learned. Um, and a lot of lessons learned throughout your book too. So congratulations on it. It's a really, really beautiful book. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I, I really hope, I hope people in the States get it, you know, because I was concerned a little bit about the, um, the you know, the parochial nature of it. Um, you know, to Australia. Um, but I hope it transcends that because there are not only, um, you know, a surfing message in there and, 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 a, and a lifestyle message, but it's, you know, there is, there is some social messages in there if you, if you take your time to read it carefully. It absolutely transcends. And um, little things, I mean, so many of those little stories are just colorful and whimsical and wonderful to read. But then the things like I was asking about Queensland versus New South Wales or the Gold Coast specifically, like we know that that culture is so distinctly different now, the high performance shortboard thing on the Gold Coast versus let's say Byron Bay. But to hear the origins of it and why it was that way or the early days of that surf culture developing, I had never considered before, you know? So it was great to see that stuff too. Oh, I'm so pleased that you, you've been able to glean something out of it that, 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 that you know, resonates with you that, and it's something that you, you haven't seen before. That's really exciting for me. Yeah. yeah, totally. There's lots of that in there. So, all right. Well, Stephen, thank you again for taking time out of your Saturday morning. This has been awesome. And thank you, mate. I really appreciate your time. You know, I, um, I've been, highly recommended to you to do this so so i'm sure you do a great job yeah. that's nice to hear thank you all right mate all right okay. we'll be in touch i don't know how to turn this off so i'll go and get john <laughs> okay cool i'll be in touch thanks i could build me a castle with memories just to have somewhere to go count the days and the nights that it takes to get back in the saddle again Feed the pigeons some clay Turn the night into day And start talking again We know what to say Thank you very kindly, Stephen Cooney and also John Ogden for facilitating this conversation. I've linked to Unearthed and how to purchase it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. 
Also, everything Morning of the Earth is available on morningoftheearth.com. There's a really epic coffee table book that they put together for this anniversary. Um, so I encourage you to grab that or give it as a gift. Of course, the film is worth watching. And then they made the soundtrack available on vinyl as well. So that's super cool. And uh, I think that is all that I have for you this week. Scott Bass and I published an episode of Spit Podcast yesterday, recapping the Portugal event and much, much more. Chas Smith is actually off in Mexico uh, this week, but we are planning to catch up via Zoom at the end of the week. So go grab that. That show is called The Grit. And then I will be back here on Surf Splendor next week as always. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting our work. And thank you for sharing the show with friends. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. And I hope that you take the time to get back into the water, share some waves, and as always, shred on.